other guys who was in the video, Sai comes up and he sits down and he goes, wow, man, you did really good. And I go, wow, I, I, I mean, I hope it works out really well. This was really fun. And he sat back in his chair and he goes, you really have no idea what's about to happen to you, do you? Uh, nope. Seems hilarious now. <laughs> Every time I see him, I go, it's your fault. <laughs> Welcome to Tomversations, that's T-H-O-M-versations, where the H makes all the difference. A podcast of stories, experiences, and knowledge, conversations with interesting people. I'm your host, Tom Kilcain. How the H are you? I do hope that you're doing well and uh, things are going okay for you in the midst of this winter. But today is part two with Wands. And we start off where we left off, with him asleep in a dorm room. And you'll get the rest of that story. Learn about his bands after college. And of course, you'll hear about how he sang the hook for the song Thrift Shop, for Macklemore and Ryan Lewis, to touring the world, and his story about being overwhelmed while at the Fillmore in San Francisco. So if you like what you hear, please do give a thumbs up or a like and uh, subscribe to conversations wherever you get your podcasts is fine or you can come to thomversations.com that's conversations.com and become a member okay that's uh, just a short message for you and uh, let's get to it why wait around here's part two of the story of wands rolled over now and I'm and then uh, I hear from outside my door and down the hall we're all gonna die (laughs) (laughs) I go you know and so I put on a robe and I go out and there's just all this commotion all this there's people everywhere that live in the you know on that floor and in that door you know what's going on what's going on what's going on my next door neighbor uh, was a chem major. His door was open, but he wasn't in there. He was on the fire escape. And that's when I noticed, you know, the fire door was open. It's dark outside. And he came back to his room and everybody's like gathered around his room. And I went walking deeper into the hall and walked by this one room. And there's a newspaper kid, you know, who delivers the Ellensburg record. He's got, he's standing there and he's on the phone. And there's two people standing there, and that I'm, I'm like, I still don't know what's going on. Nobody is telling me anything. So I go back to the chem major's room, and he's like, or no, actually, after I saw the paper boy, someone finally told me Mount St. Helens blew. Ah. Then I went back to the chem major's room where there was like eight people gathered around the door because he was testing it, and he goes, Well, nope, it's not toxic it's the ash falling from the sky right it's a chem major you figure out this stuff pays to be in that dorm i i totally glossed over when i got to central i was 17 years old 10 days after living on that uh, being on that campus i had befriended uh a few guys like four guys from the uh junior status or over 21 dorm Mm -hmm. and they voted to move me in there. So I had moved, I had left Almani where all the other freshmen were, and I was on the other end of campus 
living with everyone in the dorm was either a junior or they were at least 21 years old. And here I was 17. I got in there, I think, I think about five days, four days before my birthday, before my eight, before my 18th birthday, which I slightly remember. Especially in that hall. Uh, this is the thing about me. It's like you can ask me one question, I will talk for a long time because everything is a story. Yeah. That's a good one a too. I like that one. I like my, my whole life is a story. So to continue on with the Mount St. Helens story, because it's almost at the end, and this is like the funniest part. So everyone is like, I've tried to call my parents because you have phone in your room, right? And I tried to call, circuits were all busy, couldn't get through, and, and it was like, okay, screw it. So I am putting on these big, heavy ski pants. I had one of my dad's old army parkas, big, thick parka. I have ski hat, goggles, bandana across my face, boots, snow boots on, and I'm leaving. And one of my friends is like, where are you going? You can't go out there. That stuff is going to kill you. And I said, well, if I die, I'm going to die on a full stomach. I, I was going to go eat. I was starving. <laughs> so I started walking from the base of campus and I'm walking up the main breezeway and it's dark. I mean, like dark, dark, like dark. <laughs> and yeah, yeah it's, it's, my... I mean, like, there is no, like, uh, I remember that because I remember that day very vividly as well. Mm -hmm. Like the sun, there's not like, uh, like a cloud had gone on the day because this is during the daytime. This is absolute pitch black dark, the yeah. darkest night you've ever been in, yeah. but darker. I'm like, it's like 945 and I'm walking up to the center of campus and it is like all the street lights are on, but you can't, all the, the lights are on, but you still, there's so much particulates in the air. It's, they barely do any good. So it's like a combination of like it being extremely foggy, only darker. Yeah, and, and it's sand basically yeah. falling out. So I'm, I'm walking along and I, I hold my hand out and I'm watching the ash fall into my hand. And I got this weird idea because ever since I was a kid, I couldn't, I'm dreaming of a black Christmas, just like the one. And I started singing at the top of my lungs. I'm all by myself. There's no one else around. And I'm walking, I'm dreaming of a black Christmas. I think it's the coolest thing because I have finally gotten my wish. I am finally experiencing black snow <laughs> by the time i got up near the student union or by the dining hall i'm like i don't care what the white man says the claus was a black man and doing reggae stuff it was hilarious and this is just me in all this garb not realizing that this is may in eastern washington the day before, it had been almost 90 degrees. I'm wearing ski stuff. It's not like it got cold. <laughs> I was roasted. It's like 75, 80 degrees. Now all the particulates are trapped in the heat. It was like a sauna. It's crazy. Finally got to the I got to the dining hall. Dining hall was packed. There had been a marching band competition in Yakima. No. Could have been one there. No, 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 no. It was somewhere else. 
all I knew is that there were five kids. There were five buses of marching well, bands. They couldn't go through. They couldn't go over the pass. They couldn't. They couldn't go one way or the other. Yeah. I can't remember. All yeah. I know is that they were five. Yeah, I think they were going east. Or I mean, going west because yeah. Richland was there, uh, and there was uh, two high schools from Yakima from the Yakima Valley were there. Yeah, so they must have been going over the mountains. But there are five of them. And so there's all these kids, all these high school kids in with all these college kids. And we're all like, it's all dusty and we're all eating. And then it's like, awesome. <laughs> it's just like, awesome. <laughs> Got my belly full and ran into a friend of mine. And she just happened to be the, 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 the person who ran the girls dorm in Hitchcock Hall, which was like a stone, just right adjacent to the dining hall. So I went over to her place and stayed there for two whole days. Wow. For two whole days after Mount St. Helens blew, I was on the, I slept on the floor of her place and was just running around the girl's door. You lucky bastard. Heaven, I'm in. <laughs> it was awesome. Okay. Uh, those, those are great stories. Thanks. I appreciate that. Got tons of Good, good. Well, let's, so I, I really want to get to, you know, um, of course, you, the, 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 the whole. Uh, uh, yeah, that part that part you know because it's it's such a big thing man you know you hear so let's go so you've gone through you've gone through college mm -hmm. uh, and then you you move back to seattle mm -hmm. and you're in a bunch more bands yeah mm -hmm. and you're still in there so you, that's when you start doing this uh delivery right the uh, delivery yeah care products mm -hmm. the early 90s is when i started doing or 1990 i started doing the delivery thing Three years before that, I mean, when I moved over to Alice, but my first job was working at Tower Records in the U District. Oh, I love that store. I love that store. I miss so, that store. So Tower Records is where I started meeting all these musical personalities and started oh. immersing myself in the Seattle scene. You know, so I'd get done with work, closing the store at midnight, not getting out of there until 1230 and run downtown to Perry's or run downtown to Flapper Alley or run downtown to whatever club downtown was at run down to pioneer square to doc maynard's to larry's Greenfront, and see who's playing there because nobody ever played it it used to be nobody ever played at the jnm cafe because well just nobody ever did <laughs> right until they needed a spot that was that wasn't until like 92 hmm. 90 92 or 93 is when they started having music at the at the and then even then the only reason they did that is because Larry's Greenfront closed. By that time, everybody, you know, the whole rock and roll crowd, the, the music crowd had moved up to Belltown because there was nobody in Belltown. You know, it was a kind of semi-industrial and nobody lived there. And so, you know, the bars there were insane. I mean, in, in the sense that the drinks were extremely, they were extremely cheap because musicians never had any money. And they were sort of strong because it was really easy to make friends with the bartenders. Right? Mm. So, man, that's where I started meeting guys like Kim Thale and Matt Cameron and Stoney Gossard and Jeff Amit. And those were like my drinking buddies. Yeah, and this is, uh, these are guys that are basically, um, I don't know if you call them stars in the grunge era. What um, they, that's really where they kind of 
hit their peak. I don't know what I don't know what to say here, but that's really when they're known as like the grunge era came along, and these guys that you're talking about really started their bands that they were in, really started to peak. They had started the bands before what I'm talking about. Oh, oh no, I'm not saying that they started their bands, but that's when they started to become known as that. Yeah. Uh, no, that's what oh. I'm saying. I'm oh, agreeing. Okay. Sorry. Because you know, I, there's another fabulous story about my 27th birthday. My 27th birthday happened in 1988. And three bands played at my birthday party. One that I had constructed and helped put together called Bag and Asty. One were really good friends of mine who used to, who featured um, the one of the lead singers of a of, of perennial Seattle band called The Heats. The Heats. I've heard of the Heats. His new band was the Range Hoods. So he, the Range Hoods, Bag and Asty. And this other band of friends of mine, because we used to hang out down on First Avenue in Belltown a lot together, that nobody really knew outside of Belltown, called Alice in Chains. Yeah, I didn't know they were. They hung out in Belltown. Yeah. Hmm. Okay. Two, so like two months. So my birthday's in October. So just after Christmas that year is when everything every i mean everything exploded everything started to explode took about seven months so by the end of the summer in 89 going into 90 that's when it all blew up yeah this is uh you're talking like uh, alice in chains and uh, nirvana and mookie blaylock and um stone Stone and the u-men and u-men Grunt Truck and the Super Suckers and Shotgun Mama and Lazy Susan and God only knows how many bands that I'm forgetting because I killed those brain cells long ago. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah. And that's when I was, uh, that's when I started doing radio. Hmm. It's been that time. Yeah, by 91, you know, the damage had already been done. Um, Andy would have died. It would be another year and a half before uh, Kurt dies. And then another three years, two years, two and a half years before Lane dies. And then another five years before Mike Starr dies. No, it was less than that. But yeah, it's crazy. Yeah. All, the, all the cats who survived. I mean, talk about weird. This is how small the music community was between like 88 in 92. In 89, I met a guy in Seattle who knew of a band who needed a bass player and they were in Tacoma. So I drove down, auditioned for, and got into this band. The drummer of that band was the same drummer who made the record 10. Nice. I know, right? I don't know who that is, though um shoot i've got the album even but okay yeah but yeah it's a tight it's a it's a, a tight-knit community yeah where in agent boy agent boy was was a was a not very long-lived band that was out of tacoma that i drove down to practice with and we were playing like um craft work and oingo boingo and <laughs> and uh, flock of seagulls and and duran duran type stuff wow 
That's way Dave, different. Dave uh, Cruzen. Dave Dave Cruzen is his Cruzen. name. There you go. There you go. David Cruzen was the drummer of that band. Agent Boy. I have one picture of he and I. He's on the drums and I'm on bass. And I found it two years ago. And you know, we were just kind of acquaintances on Facebook. I sent it to him. He freaked the hell out. <laughs> of course, I freaked out when I found. It. I didn't know it was him. Yeah. So you know, he's a legend. Yeah. He's in the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame, man. Is he? Dave Cruzen. Couldn't tell you what he's doing now. I have no idea. Probably playing drums. Probably playing drums. <laughs> yeah. Yep. But yeah, everybody got signed, and then I was still digging it and still trying. And see, by '93, it was that was the pretty much the end of Life Ring, which was the band that was like we tried to get opening gigs for all those bands that I mentioned before anybody knew who they were, mm-hmm. and it, you know, just just to be in the room playing because they were the headliners and they were playing last, so you wanted to be first or second on hopes that whoever was in the record business would come at the end of your set so that they could get a good seat for whoever was was headlining who they really wanted to see who they really wanted to see because once you find out who they are and you get their card then all you got to do is keep in touch with them and then you have somebody to send your music to that was the logic didn't work out very well because you know those cats you know back then they were they didn't really get up and function until like two three in the afternoon yeah no. so dinner time for us was like breakfast and then you know they're running around doing other things with the radio stations and whatever until like 10 or 11 and the drinks and the lines have already started so they're all blowed out they're all coked up and hot with hot with whiskey by 10 30 when the headliner goes on or quarter to 11 when the headliner goes on mm-hmm. And by then it was like they didn't they 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 had come to see somebody, but then it was a matter of, you know, were they going to get more drugs and was the band going to get them laid? And that, you know, I wasn't I didn't have the money for that. So <laughs> yeah. there you go. It wasn't all like that, but I mean, I remember. I there are some stories. There's always stories. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, it's like uh, that was the '90s, and then by '96, '97. You know, I was out of uh, out of another out of that band trying to figure out what I wanted to do, and ran into another group of guys. In '97, we made a record. In '98, this was the Ghetto Monks. Ghetto Monks. That name sounds familiar. The Ghetto Monks. We were around for like five years, huh? I may have actually heard you. Probably. So the 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 question that always that I always ask when people say that is, did you ever listen to uh, sports radio on AM radio? in the late 90s probably i'm a radio so, guy so I, I i'm really a butterfly around the radio so yeah the the there was a show that came on five days a week that had mike gastineau and dave grosby and it was called gros with gas yeah okay yeah well if you remember listening to sports radio about that time this is like the sonics are popping it's 96 97 98 you know we're always in contention and so on and so over the 98 season where matumbo's holding the ball and they win they when we lose well at that time Graz and gas had a show called Graz with gas and one of the ghetto monks brothers 
sent them our record. They really liked us. And all of a sudden, before we knew it, we were on the radio. I had rewritten some lyrics to like three or four of our songs and they made one of it their tagline. So at that time, if you were listening to Gras with Gas, then you heard Gras with Gas, ow! You. Me. Nice. Yeah, so uh, it was like a big thing for a little while. Yeah, I'm on the radio and you can hear me. You can hear me at one minute after three, Monday through Friday. <laughs> and I play for exactly a minute and a half. And then subsequently, my me and my band play all the commercials. That's cool. Yeah. That's a yeah. good gig. It was. We thought it would get us somewhere, but it kind of didn't. Yeah. Still couldn't still couldn't find that gig. You know, it, it was just, I don't know what it was. I don't know what it was. Hmm. But you know, it's not for, I guess I guess the breaks aren't for everyone. At least that's what I started thinking. But once it got into the 2000s, you know, the ghetto monk, the ghetto monks kind of faded away by 2002. And I was singing in another band and that lasted until like 2003, 2000, end of, beginning of 2004, I got out of that and just kind of started trying to write my own stuff and that wasn't working out. But, you know, I was working at Microsoft, so I was able to maintain and actually save money and um we get to the end of the 2000s and my relationship falls apart and i move out and started collecting recording gear 2010 i get a i stop working at microsoft and i start working downtown and five days a week i'm riding the bus and and working on beats and recording my own stuff 2011 so when did you start do, doing that recording your own stuff by yourself again like 2007 okay knowing almost nothing thinking i knew a lot but knowing almost nothing about audio engineering right well and this is before youtube so it wasn't that easy mm. so 2011 um i get a call one day from an old college friend who we sang jazz in jazz choir together for years she talked me into auditioning for the seattle opera no they way. needed African, yeah. They needed African American singers for their production of Porgy and Bess. Oh, okay. I said I don't do that, and she's like, "No, I know, I know you." It's like you. <laughs> so I go yeah. over to her house. She gave me a voice lesson. Learned a piece. She gave me a piece of music to learn. I learned it. Went down, did the audition, got a call back. Got another lesson from her. Learned another piece of music. Took it down there, and they picked me. How cool is that? So in the summer of, in the spring of 2011, I was starting to rehearse with the Seattle Opera Chorus to do a production of Porgy and Bess, which came in like the, the first week of August. Does that pay? It certainly did. Well enough to quit the gig or did you had to no. keep? No. Oh, no. At this okay. time, you know. Uh, but it pays so so we're into like 2011 by this time i was just figuring out because i had gotten a new job that was actually i was gainfully employed i had actually been able to keep up with not one but two child support cases um repaired my credit from two bankruptcies that i had done in 2004 and 2007 i was just coming out right i was just getting my life together i was happy yeah i mean 2011 I still have the car that I actually, for the first time in my life, walked onto a lot, test drove a car, came back, talked to a guy, signed my name, and he gave me the keys, and I own the car. 
<laughs> it's like that's a great feeling isn't it yeah but you know waiting until you're 48 49 years old you know that's the way that went mm. so 2011 comes to a close with my youngest son deciding he doesn't want to, live, want to live with his mom anymore so he comes to live with me failing high school going in his senior year and i'm trying to put him back together because i had left her years ago and because that wasn't happening mm. and he left for the same reasons that i did so i'm trying to put him back together and taking him through school and in may of 2012 um a now ex-friend of mine called me up and asked me if i would come and do a session for a guy who was looking for a singer who sounded like nate dog now with this because uh, you know I, I i because i know a little bit about your story and I'm going to let you tell it, but the, the confusion I have is like, do you have, were you doing some other things like that with, uh, before that? You, you in the had, early 2000s. Yeah. In the, not long after I got that gig at Microsoft, the girl I was shacked up with was working at a grocery store that had a deli and she was working with a guy who was part of a troop called full-time soldiers. Hmm. Rap troop. They were like Wu-Tang, only much smaller and more obscure because they were from shoreline <laughs> lake city shoreline area yeah. nobody came up here yeah. so but they didn't have you know she told one of them that i could sing and i met him and you know he'd come over and we talked about some stuff and i met him in the studio we put something together and because people liked what i did on his record then all of a sudden i was doing like three other guys's records mm -hmm. so from 2000 to about 2003 ish i was doing you know, for various people on this little label out of the North End. And that's where I got the moniker, Nate Dog of the North End. I didn't know you had that moniker. That's cool. Yeah, well, you know, not many people from the North End. Not, not very <laughs> many people know the hip-hop history of the North End. So. <laughs> and since the North End didn't really go anywhere, it was, yeah. you know, it was all pretty self-contained. But anyway, that engineer slash producer, right, he and I stayed connected all through the 2000s. And he's the one who called me on that April, May, May-ish night in 2012. And he took me to meet Macklemore and Ryan Lewis. And that was the night that we did thrift shop. Now there's, isn't there like, um, I kind of like how you said, uh, like uh, you were just basically hanging out on the couch. Oh no, I was in bed. You're in bed? Yeah, my dude, my, 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 my now ex-friend called me at 1230. Oh, oh, I had just gotten done watching Nightline because <laughs> Nightline came on after the local news, which ended at 1130 and Facebook was kind of a thing. Everybody was on it, not just old people. <laughs> so I was like, I was surfing Facebook and, you know, this guy usually text or called or no, he text, he either texted or emailed. So the fact that he was calling me, I thought something was wrong. Pick up the phone. He asked me if I was down for a session and hour and a half later i'm walking in and i'm shaking hands with ben haggerty and ryan lewis aka macklemore and ryan lewis <laughs> yeah. that's a what a what an interesting and and it's kind of like how i like again these interesting connections in your life how mm -hmm. because you know this one thing mm -hmm. you know you get to these certain points in your life and wow the nate dog of the north end suddenly comes in and you go in, it's 1230. And what are you thinking? 
I go, uh, by the time I got there, it was like 115, 130. No, one, about 115, 120. You got to work the next day? Uh-huh. And, you know, I don't care if they're going to pay me. Yeah. That's the way that works. So anyway, probably about by 120 or 130 or so is like, you know, I've they've explained the song. You know, we've done all that getting to know each other stuff and they explain the song and Ben is showing me the words, Ryan's playing the track and the first thing that pops out of my mouth because he's explaining how the words go, right? And they said they wanted it like like Nate Dogg would sing it. And it's like, oh, so I'm gonna pop some tags. Only got $20 in my pocket. And he got all excited. Yeah, yeah, like that, like that. So we worked it all out, right? Worked out the hook. They put me in the booth. Boop, 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 boop. Recorded take after take. Boop, boop. Stacked up, okay, came out, talked through the bridge. Same thing. I think, let's see, from the time that I first went into the booth to the time that they were writing me a check and we were done was 45 minutes. Easy money. For some. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> that night for me. And everybody, yeah. you know, every dog has his day. Mine just happened to happen at night. <laughs> so did uh, did you know those words, like what they meant? Like what the, what popping tags meant or? Didn't uh, care. Yeah. <laughs> Didn't care. I liked I liked the beat and the production because it didn't sound like it didn't sound like Seattle. It didn't sound like other Seattle rap that I had heard because all the other Seattle rap that I had heard besides Sir Mix a Lot sounded uh, like either Wu Tang Clan or the Fugees or um, just like lo-fi, almost jazz, almost jazz poetry mm -hmm. but not not rap right this right. was i mean this stuff didn't sound like that it sounded different yeah definitely and, sounded different you know and listening to what we had recorded in the studio i also had never like this was like major equipment i knew enough about equipment to know that that microphone that i was singing into is like yeah that's a that's a that's a u47 microphone Nice. Even I knew that a U47 microphone cost more than my car <laughs> at the time. I knew that. Is that Neumann U47? That is correct. Yeah. Like four of the first four of the first five Beatle records, every single vocal you hear is recorded on a U47. So they're that just beautiful sound. Yeah, they're like 10 grand, aren't they? Something like that. I don't know. Maybe it's if not you get a, a a real one. A real one that's been around for a while and is well taken care of will cost you twelve to fifteen. Wow! But you can get a remanufactured one with slightly modern electronics, but still has the same specs for eighty-five to ten. Good God! Wow! Okay. Right. Right. And you're and you're singing into one of those. I know. It's like oh, it's got my spin on it. Ooh. <laughs> <laughs> yeah yeah but uh you know got done with that session didn't think anything of it you know i mean even my kid when i left my kid is who, who's staying with me he had heard of macklemore he thought it was really cool i got back he goes how'd it go and i go i think it went really good i got paid with a check that was interesting because you know when you're working with rappers and it's the and it's it's like the late mid to late 90s and the 2000s and stuff well they're either running guns drugs women or breaking into houses they're all criminals mm. because they're trying to make ends meet right i was the upstanding one who had a day job and was raising a family and you know mm -hmm. it's like i wasn't going to run the streets with these knuckleheads 
hanging out with Hennessy at, at, you know, Genesee and Martin Luther King way waiting to get shot. No, yeah. I had better <laughs> things to do. Thanks. Yeah. <laughs> so, so, you actually, so you got paid right then. Right then they paid me with a check with usually I, you know, rappers would pay me in cash and then I'd never hear from them again. Yeah. This you know, turned out you're happy with it. Are you happy with it? Cool. And they pay me. Yeah. Great job. Great job. Boom. I was gone. Mm-hmm. And I never hear from them again until they wanted, unless they wanted to do another record. And sometimes that was a couple of years because, you know, they'd get busted and they'd be in jail. Oh, wow. Yeah. So that's kind of the way that went. Um, beginning of July. So, yeah, you go home, you, you, you get home at like uh, two o'clock in the morning, three o'clock. And what is it like? You... Yeah. And then I went and got went to work the next day. No big deal. So. June, my kid graduates. I take him and my oldest uh, to Hawaii. So we go to Hawaii the third week, uh, nice. right at the end of you June. You are doing much better. Yeah. Dream of a lifetime, taking my sons. The first time we had ever been on a trip together. And we go to Hawaii for a week. It was done. nice. So get back um, after 4th of July and go through August and then it's around or go through July and it's around the end of July. My, I'm walking into work. My phone rings and it's Ryan. Hey, we're doing a video for thrift. You want to be in it? Sure. Why not? Well, okay. We'll send somebody down to where are you at? And I told him, and it's like, I got to see if I can get the, get off of work, got off work and they sent down their manager to pick me up. He took me to Leroy's menswear store. He took you to Leroy's. He took me to Leroy. Oh, dang, I, I really, I hope that you would have gone there. Like that was your choice because Leroy was just, that's, that's the cool shop. Leroy, the legendary pimp clove ear. Yeah. Oh, there. Man. I went so, in there when I, like, when I was a young man, I think I was like 21. Mm-hmm. So uh, going because uh, just checking out Seattle I had a buddy who lived there we were just kind of walking around going to bars doing whatever being young guys and like just walking past him like I'm going in this shop right and I couldn't afford anything in there except a tie so I bought a tie from Leroy it's still one of my favorite ties I'm, but you know <laughs> you have ties I've got like nine suits <laughs> <laughs> yeah yeah and so you go there now and he takes you to Leroy what to and I want to know the story. I'd like to hear the story about the suit. That That is, this is the story of the suit. Yeah. So we're in there and uh, the manager's like sending, uh, you know, sending pictures to Ben, who was on location. And uh, he sends a picture of this green one. And it's like, "Eh, you know, what do you think? Eh, I don't really like the color green. And this little voice from across the store. It's too small. It won't fit him anyway. <laughs> and that was Leroy. And that's the first time that's like Leroy and I actually engaged with each other and had me try on the now infamous creamsicle suit. And uh, he, you know, did the cuff on the on the pants, hemmed him up, and you know, we were out the door up to Capitol Hill to the basement of the unicorn. And it was that simple. Just like was, yeah, I don't like yeah, the green yeah. I mean, it's, the orange it, 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 it's at the time it seemed really complicated. But it was actually very simple. And I say this because they were, and to this day still are, a very organized, very calculated group, not just of musicians, not just like Macklemore and Ryan Lewis, you're saying. Both of them, yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. They are, they are, I mean, at the time, you know, I didn't know Ryan was like 25 years old. 
Jesus, man, he, he, he carried himself more like he was 35 or 40. Smartest cat I'd ever seen. Hmm. <clears throat> but he had just gotten out of the U. He had been, you know, he just graduated from University of Washington. By the time he and Ben got together, they met on MySpace. <laughs> but that's another story. Uh-huh. This one, you know, I'm, I'm, I don't really know anybody. There's a DJ playing and everybody starts dancing and we're starting to get to know each other and so on and so forth. And it comes, I go upstairs and, and change. So I go up and change and come back down and everybody's going, oh my God, he's looking hot. Oh, that's fierce. Oh my God. Dance a little more and then it's time to set up for the shot. What do you want? Uh, who's going to be in it with me? And it's like, nope, we just want to want you to, you know, we just want to film you singing the hook. And it's like, okay. So first take, I screw it up. It's okay, nerves, whatever. Second take, get a little farther, screw it up. That's all right, that's all right. You know, just getting used to it. Third take, screw it up again. At the end of the fourth take, Ben sticks his head out from behind the director's head and goes, you don't remember the words, do you? <laughs> I'm like, nah. Which now is hilarious. Yeah, right. Right? How could you forget these words? Yeah. Well, it's really simple. It's like, like I said before, rappers would usually pay me and then I'd never see them again. So I didn't have to actually learn a song. I just yeah. needed to come up with the part. I mean, some of them, some of those guys back in the day, I was like, I, I had not only came up with their hook line and all the music, but all the harmonies and then had them craft the song around what I had sang. Wow. You know, so like I said, they pay me and I was, I was, I was gone. So that's the way that went. But uh, (laughs) finally got it on track and, you know, it took about, it took six or eight takes to get all of what you see in the video, but it wasn't very long. Once I got the words, it was over, it was over, you know, got done filming that. Can you come back tomorrow? We're going to be filming on a boat. And I didn't know whether that meant a rowboat. I didn't know whether that meant a <laughs> dewire. Yeah. I said, I guess so. So they, yeah. they told me, and it turned out to be a speedboat. And so, you know, it, it that one portion of the video where you see, blah, 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 and then I bought a keyboard, and, blah, 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 and then I bought a kneeboard, you see him go like this on the water. Mm-hmm. That whole kneeboard part took almost an hour and a half because <laughs> he had never kneeboarded before oh geez that's and that's not easy so it's like yeah and that one time that he got up on his knees he went like this and boosh. so it's that fast <laughs> and we were done got the shot we're leaving yeah so we got done doing those the, the, all the boat scenes and Ryan was going to give me a ride back up to Northgate so I could catch the bus up to uh, Shoreline. And that was the first time that I had heard the finished song. Really? In his, in his Jeep Renegade that had like 9 million watts of power in it. <laughs> so when the low end kicked in, it killed everything inside of my rib cage. <laughs> it was amazing. I mean, I'd never heard myself sound like that before. I'd never heard kick hit that hard i'd never heard a sub bass so hard i thought it was amazing oh one thing 
when we got done with the first thing, um, before I bounced out of there, I'm sitting at the bar. I ordered a burger because I hadn't eaten, you know, and so I'm sitting there. And another guy who's what bar is it? The Unicorn oh, on okay. Capitol Hill. Cool. So I'm having a burger, and one of the other guys who was in the in the in the in the video, he's the guy that just before just before uh, Ben starts going. Um, peep game take a look too much right before he does that part there's a black guy who comes up and he does this oh yeah with his hands <laughs> yeah his name's Sai. Sai comes up and he sits down and he goes wow man you did really good and i go wow i i mean i hope it works out really well this was really fun and he sat back in his chair and he goes you really have no idea what's about to happen to you do you uh no seems hilarious now <laughs> every time i see him i go it's your fault <laughs> you did this way to go Sai. that's the way to go Sai. you did this so yeah it was it was crazy but uh end of end of august that thing dropped and i was still working at my job and it started to take off and I took some time off to 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 go do some. I had some some PTO, and I went and did some shows and with them. Yeah, you know, because I remember like when that I had is probably got it through Facebook, where somebody had posted like, "Hey, check out this thing." I'm like, "What a fun, funny video!" And it's got a great beat. And I just sent that to everybody. You know, this I is when it had like maybe eighty thousand hits at the time or something like you. that, and then just boom that that video just kind of skyrocketed i don't even know i should have looked that up before we talked like how many hits it has now it's going to be as of now it has over 1.52 billion wow with a b wow i know right wow it's phenomenal like i said that's just you know it's lightning in a bottle completely completely <laughs> Wow. Total walk of, and that's, I mean, for a guy who had been singing since he was six years old, who spent the better part of the 90s and the 2000s trying to get his shot, finally gave up at the end of the 2000s and just started goofing around, got up and went and sang for someone he didn't know. What's that say? What's that say about you? Well... You know, there's a I, lot of perseverance. I, you know, during, I spent two and a half years touring on that one song, gave up a job. I walked away from 85K a year with benefits and stock options and the whole nine yards. Best job I ever had. But, you know, I had done four shows, including in front of a sold out Wamu theater, 7,500 people with flames and shit. <laughs> I was dripping. One of my old roommates from college was at that show. And at the end of the show, I met him at the, at the security barricade and we hugged each other and both cried because he had been there when I got, when I first started playing bass in a band in the basement of the house that we used to live in at 4th and Anderson in LA. Wow. Right? That's and now here, here this was, because you could see what was happening. Mm -hmm. Three nights or four nights after that, Ben corners me and says, they, you know, he asked me to join the tour. I asked my job. They didn't get back to me. Wait, 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 All right, all right. They didn't get back to me, right? Mm -hmm. He asked me on a Thursday. 
Sunday was supposed to be my, my last night on, on that leg of the tour before they started going south into California. It was a sun, it was a Saturday night and I, I, I didn't hear from them. The next show was in San Francisco on Sunday night at the Fillmore. You know what the Fillmore is? Uh, yeah, I've, I've heard of it. <laughs> For me, yeah. Mr. 51-year-old who used yeah, to lie on, lie on his back on Saturday nights and listen to live at the Fillmore, Bill Graham presents on AM radio. Yeah. He could listen to live concerts. Yeah. Who was the host of that show? I can't remember. I didn't care. All I knew is that I had a sold out show to do there and I was going yeah. to Mecca. Yeah. I had to, that was everybody. They had the dead, they had the doors. And everyone in between. You name it. Yeah. They have yeah. a poster on the wall. They have the post, they have a poster on the walls for everybody who's played there. You know, okay, just a little aside to this is that I worked in radio and we used to do that show and it came on a CD. So you'd oh, play, really? yeah, so you'd play the CD because it just had like, okay, the first cut or whatever was 13 minutes. Mm -hmm. And then you'd have a break. They would have their own commercials on the CD. Then you'd cut in and you'd do a local commercial. Mm -hmm. And then you go back to the show by hit and play. Mm -hmm. But yeah, yeah, I've, I've heard a lot of those shows, but go on. So yes, they, here you are. You wanted, so they said, hey. No, nobody said anything. No, I'm, oh, oh, that's nobody the issue. Nobody said anything. I mean, it's, it's, so it's the end of, it's the end of the show in Eugene on Saturday night. Okay. Hang on. So you've, Let, so you've got the video, the videos come out and now you're yeah. going, you're, you've, so you, you just, they say, Hey, we're going to do a few shows local or. Oh, no, no, no. So the video comes out and yeah. I see what's happening. Cause I'm hitting refresh and going, Oh my God. Oh my God. Because it's, <laughs> you know, it's, it's, it's like nuclear fusion. It's like, <laughs> I can just, I can, I can it's just growing it at, a, at a rate that no, I'm freaking out because, and my friends are freaking out. My, my old friends, my new friends, everybody's freaking out because it's like, no, no one's seen anything like this and it's it's happening to who me who's been yes. like grinding and doing everything and all yes. these people who've been trying to see me in bands since freaking 91 couldn't happen to a harder worker oh my god they were just tripping so saturday night in eugene i had to make a decision and you know i'm uh my my friend at the time andrew jocelyn he's, you, you should just go for it you just go for it. Yeah, what do you do? So, you know, the follow van, we started taking off. And, and Sunday Sunday afternoon, we got into San Francisco, started setting up for the show, loading in and setting up. And At the Fillmore East. At the Fillmore. And I'm like looking around. I've already been there and I've already like taken a tour. I've had a meal, right? And I'm looking at all these posters on the wall. I'm standing in the middle of the floor looking at the chandeliers thinking of the history of this one room. And I remember that little kid lying on his back listening to shows broadcast from this very room. And I broke into tears. I just started crying. That was the moment that all of this became real, that it was happening. It was happening. And the whole show was magic from start to finish. The whole night I, was, was magic. I couldn't take enough pictures to capture it. I don't remember how it was that I even slept that night, but I do remember the next day I had taken the, the, our, our van and I was wandering around kind of lost around the Presidio looking for a credit union because I had gotten my first tour check. 
and my phone rang and it was my boss. So weren't you supposed to come back today? Well, I didn't, I, did you get my email? And then I called, did, you didn't get back to me. No, the blah, 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 blah. So when can we expect you back? And I said, you know, and I told him what, what had happened the night before a little bit. And I said, I, for a guy my age, an opportunity like this may never come again. So I gotta, I gotta stay out here. And that's, that's the only job that I've ever like quit. I've always like given notice and, you know, moved on to a next job. This is this one I just quit. And it's still the only one that I've ever just quit in all my life. Yeah. In all my life. It's the only job I just quit. But you know what? I wouldn't, I don't think I would have been able to live with myself if I hadn't. Right. Because that began a two and a half year odyssey that every single dream that I've had through my life came true. TV, concerts, awards, all of it from that one song. Good on you, man. Good on you. It's like I tell people, God finally figured it was my turn. Because I've been praying for it for God knows how long. I used to say, yeah, I've been calling God for decades. And he finally noticed that my line was still blinking. <laughs> my call. Yeah. Yeah. So, you know, two and a half years later, it's like no other opportunities have, you know, have really seemed to pan out. Uh, you know, songs, they don't stay, you know, they don't stay popular forever. That one had a long run, though. That went a long run. Dude, there are not very many people who tour off of one song for two years in the music business. That's a lot. Yeah. Well, and it's not like his other music is, you know, he just didn't have such a large catalog. Not then. Uh, yeah. Now it's like, you know, back then he had a 50 minute to an hour show. Now he yeah. has a 90 to, 90 to 120 minute show. Nice. Wow. So you, you decide there in in san francisco the fillmore mm -hmm. to uh say i'm like okay this is it i mean yeah uh, look how old i am i uh, when am i going to get this shot again this is the shot right and so then you go on it was a u.s tour so we finished uh in la four nights after the san francisco sh show took a week and a half off and then they flew me out to philly where I caught up with them again, and they were starting an East Coast swing. So we do the show in Philly, which was great. And at the end of that show, just because of logistics, I ended up riding on the main tour bus, which had been wrapped in Mac. It was crazy. So I fall asleep on the bus, wake up, bus isn't moving, wake up, it's daytime. I get out because at the and then at the time I was smoking, so it's like I'm gonna go have a cigarette. Mm. And I walk and close the door of the thing and I put a cigarette in my mouth and I light the cigarette. And as I do, I'm looking up and I'm looking up and oh my freaking god, that's the green monster at Fenway freaking Bar. <laughs> you didn't know where you were going. The real one. 
<laughs> right there. I freaked out. I knew we were going to Boston. I didn't know we were going to Fenway frickin' Park. <laughs> you know, that's the other that's the other really cool thing about, you know, all these things that I had seen on television. I was seeing you should have seen me when I saw Madison Square Garden. First time I had ever been to New York. Oh my God. First time I had ever been to Square Garden. First time I'd ever been to New York. And our hotel is two blocks from the Madison Square Garden. Where Howard Cosell would call famed boxing matches of Muhammad Ali and George Foreman. <laughs> it's crazy. Like I said, every single every single wish that i had ever wished came true because of that one song wow and then you so you do this uh, united states tour and you go on a world tour right I've never been to australia before never had a passport before never went anywhere sitting at san francisco airport at night it's like 7 30 no it's like nine getting ready to get on a flight to Christchurch, exactly. wherever the hell that is, <laughs> right? Yeah. 14-hour flight, everybody else is sacked out. I'm wide awake. 14-hour flight. I was awake for pretty much the whole damn thing. Because that's, you know, that was the year that, I mean, I, the plane took off and, you know, everyone's, it started to get daylight and I'm like, okay, fine. I still look out and it's just nothing but blue. And I'm going, water. And lots of it. <laughs> and all I could think of was like the beginning of the of the show Lost, where the plane crashes. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Good stuff. Yeah. EG somewhere, hopefully. So we went and we did Australia, and then we came back and hung out for a little bit. And then we did another tour around, the, or no, then we went to Europe again. What was your favorite place? Did you have a, a favorite place to, to go or to, that you, there's a someplace around the world that you found a connection to, or you just weren't there long enough? It's very strange because, you know, you never spend more than a day, day and a half in the same place. Often you, you spend like 14, 15 hours in one place before you're off to the next place, right? That's just tour life. Um, I really loved Sydney. And uh, an old friend from that grew up on my block and I graduated high school with lived in Melbourne. Mm -hmm. So getting to see him was awesome because I hadn't seen him since high school. Um, yeah, Australia was cracking. New Zealand was really, really, really cracking. We played Dunedin and Dunedin looked like here. Yeah. Dunedin, yeah. New Zealand. And I mean, it was like 50 some odd degrees, like 58 degrees. It was cloudy and a little drizzly. And I'm going, oh my God, I'm in Fremont. <laughs> you know what I mean? Yeah, it was crazy. That's kind of on the, that's in the South Island near the South. I think it's kind of near the end of the South Island. Yeah. So, yeah. And if I'm not mistaken, the guy who did the, uh, the fastest Indian that movie, He's from Dunedin, like the, mm -hmm. the world. He did, built his own motorcycle, speed motorcycle. Yeah, we played at the end of a football stadium 
that's soccer to you American people. <laughs> uh, but that place was, it was as big as uh, Safeco Field and half of the football stadium. Wow. It was huge. Seated 120 grand. Wow. And we played at one end of it so that we could have eight and a half, 8,500 people. Wow. 8,500? We were just at one part of the we were at the end <laughs> like in the like in the uh uh utility section <laughs> where they store the lawnmowers and shit <laughs> it's crazy but that was cool that was a great that was a great trip um paris was fun even though i didn't see anything first time we went to paris it's like they made me something called a fan liaison so they could save money bring one less person and I would be like the guy, the helper who helps set up shows, right? So instead of just walking on and singing one song and then being done, I helped set up for the show, then ran back, changed my clothes, came back, sang, got done, changed back into normal clothes, waited until the end of the show, helped tear everything down. Oh, so you're part roadie. Yeah. Oh, for the for the for the whole European swing for the for the European World Tour. Wow, that does that. So I mean, you say you said you were making eighty five grand. Does uh being a you know um, not to cashier or anything, but be a part time of a of a big project like that? Does that how does that pay enough to to pay your bills at all? Or I'm In curious. About seven that. months, I paid off my car. I paid off all my student loan debt, and within. 10 months, I had no debt. Good on you, but geez. So, yeah. 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 I, I got, you know, and I have a guy who lived, I mean, from, from 80s, Jesus, earlier than that, uh, from 84, basically from 84 to 2010, I lived at or below the poverty line. Wow. If you look at the, you know, income versus expenditures. I mean, you know, Microsoft, I was making pretty good money, but I was just hella in a hole. So it all went away. I was paying for all kinds of stuff. Mm -hmm. So, you know, this was the first time that I was like, I, I had money. I had money to burn. Nothing says, nothing says, oh my great golly Moses, you got an email that says you have just been paid. You go look and there's 24 grand in your fucking account. And you go, ha, 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 ha. Okay, 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 okay. <laughs> what do you want to do? And you know, every every freaking Jaguar looks like yours. Yeah. Every freaking every freaking Mercedes looks like yours. Yeah. <laughs> it's yeah. the weirdest feeling. But I tried to, you know, I was trying to parlay into the next thing because I knew it was only one song. Yeah. And I thought I was gonna be, you know, I thought because it was such a good thing we'd do it again but that didn't happen mm. and uh, then it became kind of odd that no one had ever reached out to say hey we saw what you did there would you be interested in this would you like to try this or that or whatever those opportunities didn't come that's what happens when you don't have the right management and you know and this is where getting back to you know, getting paid with a check says something about an organization, right? 
when you have everything together, it's five people that run the whole Macklemore at that time. There was only five people, mm-hmm. five people ran the whole thing. Wow. Making millions of dollars. Right. And I didn't, you know, like so many other one hit wonders. It's like you, you, you make the best deal that you think you can, but it's not one that's really steeped in anything that's going to sustain right Mm. so beyond the the core group right so you know the last thing that i did with the last monies that i had was um we did a show in boston in 2014 and coming out of that show going to the bus was that we were at the place where the celtics play (laughs) so it was like you know (laughs) more of it more celtics and bruins it's like flag after flag after flag and then after that show, going out to the bus, you know, shaking hands and taking pictures and blah, 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 and walking to the bus. And over in the distance, I hear some kid going, oh, man, he's just trying to be like Nate Dogg. He's just riding coattails. Well, that pissed me off. You think? So when I got back to the bus, I said, you want to hear me sound like Nate? You want to hear me try to sound like Nate Dogg? Okay. So I wrote like eight bars and then the next day i made eight bars into a like a three and a half minute four minute song two days after that i came up with a hook and then i sent that back to my friend grinch grinch at i did not know was good friends with warren g so he sent the track to warren g who wanted to be on the track and that's how two Nate Dog was born. So if you go to YouTube and you put in two colon Nate Dog, N A T E D O double G, and then put wands behind it, you'll see the song that starts out Let's smoke a little bit and drink a little bit. Let's party all night. You better come on. That, you know, still, nice. it still gets like four or 500 hits every month. Wow. But see, you know, I was doing, I'm doing exact, since I ended up exactly where I was before thrift shop, I started doing the things that I was doing before thrift shop. Mm-hmm. So if somebody wanted a vocalist or they needed help producing or they wanted, that's what I, that's, you know, even now it's like, I'm trying to find out what I like to sound like. And without, you know, without experience being a producer or whatever, without the, all those, it's, it's kind of difficult it's, you know i know a lot of people and i could ask but when you don't exactly know what question to ask and now that it's the time of covid everybody is scraping everybody in the music business is scraping for every dime they can find so spare time is not a thing so you know if i wasn't if i wasn't online with you right now i'd probably have just gotten done working on a track trying to trying to perfect what my bass sounds like and getting my kick to hit and you know trying to think of words and stuff like that that's that's pretty much in my spare time that's what i do just like i always have now i found it really interesting because in this time of covid it's it's i've run out of being able to communicate i don't know how to write because i listen to i listen to music today and the popular music of today well i'm not that age and then I go listen to like adult contemporary stuff and I, I'm not that square either. <laughs> right. 
you know, I'm not going to be Smokey Robinson and Charlie Wilson, even though they want a gram, you know, they, they may win a Grammy for their song, but that's not, I'm not those guys. And those guys, I mean, Charlie Wilson's 15 years older than I am. Wow. Mm -hmm. And I'm going to be 60. So, and we don't even want to talk about Smokey. Smokey's, you know, he's old. Yeah. But he's a legend, right? He does what he does. Well, people ask, well, what do you do? Anything you want. <laughs> Everything I've tried, I've, I've, I've been successful at. So I don't know what I can do. I've done opera. I've done country. I've done rock. I've done soul. I've done funk. I've done blues, grunge, jazz. I have rap so far seems to me you're most successful, eh? What? The rap seems to be the most successful, though. Yeah, but that, you know, that's... One. If there's one thing that I learned from the Nate Dogg song is that, you know, that song could have could have been a springboard into something else, but the only problem is I only sing a part of it and it's mainly rappers. Mm. So without the other, without the other, without at least two of the three guys that are on it, namely the really famous one, Warren G., He's kind of known. People kind of know who he is. You know what I mean? <laughs> but without him, it seems nobody gives a shit. Because I spent a long time trying to put that song in front of people like a resume. But then I ran up against, you know, somebody pointed out to me, it's like, well, you know, Nate was like Warren's best friend. He's not going to like, you can't replace a best friend. And then it made sense, you know? That whole Warren G regulators thing is like that's their thing, and I I'm I'm not a part of that, so it would be insulting to think that I would be able to just walk in and start doing that. Yeah, so that's that's what's made me really cool with it. What do you do? You the answer is, yeah. the answer is always the best you can. Oh, okay, all right. Right? Yeah. And that, that works everywhere, anywhere. What do you do? The best you can. Well, uh, man, you, what I, I just, uh, you, you've got such an interesting story, some great stories, and you spent two hours with me. So yeah. I, I really, I can't thank you enough for uh, the time you spent me because it's the most valuable thing anybody has is time. And give, and give me two hours of your life. I really, really do appreciate yeah, it. You're, yeah, you're kind of cutting into like, I'm supposed to have dinner at my oldest son's and my oldest granddaughter's place. I baked them a cake. So they're kind of waiting on me. Oh, wow. You're very generous. I do appreciate it. Well, I was giving you till seven o'clock anyway, because he okay. well, ago, so okay. it worked out. See, everything works out. It always does. <laughs> Somehow. <laughs> it always does. I mean, you know, I don't, I don't, I, I, it took me a long time to learn, but the, I think the most important thing that I've learned, two things. One, nothing is going to happen if I don't do something, even if that something is nothing. The second thing is time will always tell. Time will tell. It always does. That's just been my experience. Great way to end it. Thanks again, Wands. I really, again, appreciate your time. And no uh, worries. 
thanks for asking. This is fun. Yeah, I, cool. you know, I'm one of those weird guys. It's like you ask, I'm one. You, you ask me a question, you're gonna get an answer. <laughs> I don't really ever say I don't know because you know, I know a lot, and those things that I don't know, I I have an idea. <laughs> you know what yeah. I mean? <laughs> okay, well, have a good night. Yep. Here, you do. Bye-bye. Cheers. What great stories. What an interesting life. And here's the thing. Good guy. Works hard. Does his best. And succeeds. Yeah, that's not a bad legacy to have. But the thing is, you just don't know when that success is going to happen. Or how much success you're going to have. But it seems like it worked out pretty well for him. So congratulations and well done, Wands. Uh, Wish him the best. And thanks again for uh, talking to me. It was a great conversation. And uh, thank you for listening. And if you're still around, like, subscribe, share it with your friends. Tomversations, T-H-O-M-versations. I'm Tom Cocaine, your host. Be well. Over and out.